The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. We are now in this advanced IoT automation age. Why can't we make the point of consumption the point of production? Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, welcome back. Episode 10. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of some of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Andrew Carter of Smallhold, diving deep into the world of fungi, specifically mushrooms. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend you check it out. Episode 9. This week, I have the privilege of speaking with Scott Massey. Scott is the founder and CEO of Heliponics, an organization that provides consumers with the GrowPod. It's an aeroponic appliance that can yield a full head of leafy greens on a daily basis, or sizable harvests of dwarf varieties of larger plants. We discuss the business model of grow pods, challenges Scott has had to overcome as an entrepreneur, and pivots Scott made in order to scale and sustain his business amidst what's happening with the global pandemic. It's fascinating for me to have a discussion with Scott as he is a first-time CEO and we talk about some of the challenges of growing the company and some of the things he's had to learn along the way. One of the new reviews we received recently was from Dr. EVS. He or she says, from Sweden, a new podcast addressing a rising industry, a nice balance of facts and people. Thank you so much for that kind review. If you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Okay, so let's get into this conversation with Scott. So Scott Massey, co-founder and CEO of GrowPod, thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you for having me. Huge fan of the show. Thank you so much. I know we were connected through, uh, was it, no, I'm trying to remember now, who was it that connected us through email? I want to say it was Herb Kligerman at iGrow News. Yes, uh, that's right. He's Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. And so I, I thought it would be helpful. As always, this show has grown out of my interest and fascination with all things vertical farming. So just finding out what 
people are doing in the space has been fascinating and interesting. And um, one of the episodes we have coming up with is with Virginia Emery of Beta Hatch, and she's doing insect farming. So <laughs> it's just when you just think about the idea of vertical farming, it's not a, a one size fits all. And it's something I, I'm sure that you've seen as well. So maybe just start with your interest in vertical farming. You know, can you trace that back to a specific time when that happened for you? Yeah, it was kind of a series of events that I think ultimately brought me to the private industry side because I originally began in the research realm. I, I was a student at Purdue University. I graduated in 2017, that spring semester. But uh, for, for those four years beginning in 2013, I studied mechanical engineering technology with an entrepreneurship minor. I worked actually in the oil industry for two of those years as an intern working on fluid control systems and really just optimization of mechanical designs of large industrial equipment. And the purpose of this equipment was to get liquids from point A to point B regardless if it was kerosene, diesel, biofuels, it just moved the liquid. And, you know, that translated really well into hydroponics, particularly my junior year at Purdue University. Dr. Carrie Mitchell, which is a renowned lighting horticultural expert within the indoor agriculture space, he was awarded uh, several grants from USDA, NASA, one of the agencies among others, to further research isolated spectrum of light and its effect using plants. So the full spectrum, kind of like the fluorescent light bulbs ahead of us that appear white, that is the entire visible spectrum or most of it. And so what we were doing was specifically isolating individual wavelengths and analyzing how that affected photosynthetic rates by monitoring the amount of CO2 going into the chamber and oxygen leaving it. So if you ever heard of the McCree curve or sometimes what's used to describe PAR, photosynthetic active radiation, or kind of the ideal wavelengths of light that plants need, we were essentially challenging kind of those statutes and understanding how wavelength and intensity affects plant growth and using those insights to ultimately contribute towards the decisions on lighting and irrigation and other aspects of growth chambers on the space station and actually in human colonies that will in our lifetime be established on the moon and Mars, which is a really, really exciting thing to think about in the future. But I wanted to find a way to apply vertical farming now on the short term. And that's basically the hand I had dealt with me. I was a student. I was at Purdue. I had maybe $5,000 in my bank account at most earned from my internship. I, I, I was not primed to start a business by any means. But what I did gain from that research study was just a complete fascination, a, a, much like your own experience in reading the chapter in the book in abundance about this. It's really opened my eyes to the industry. And I started applying to a lot of vertical farms. And I didn't hear back or I would get responses that, you know, we're not really looking to hire, you know, structural mechanical engineers just yet. The industry is just early. Bottom line, there wasn't a whole lot of activity happening in, at, at that time in 2016-17. And I was also 21 years old, too. So I saw the likelihood of, you know, me just starting up a vertical farm out of nowhere as being close to zero or even getting funding for that. And that's when I think my kind of recognition of the limitations in the industry started becoming really apparent. I started thinking, okay, these guys aren't hiring. So the business probably isn't super successful yet. What are the limitations? And those more often than not came down to be yields, power efficiency, and maintenance. If you can resolve those three things, which pretty much defines your overhead you know, profitability of your system, then that will tell you what works and doesn't. And so what we had 
came up with the students, when I say we, my co-founder, Ivan Ball, who was my co-worker on the study, he was the electrical computer engineer, we devised a system called rotary aeroponics that allowed us to increase our yields while reducing power consumption. And instead of thinking, what's the biggest form factor that this could be viable in? What's the biggest factory that we could get the best economies of scales? We instead asked ourselves, what's the smallest this can be and still be viable? So pausing there for a second, can you talk a little bit about the thought process? Because I think a lot of people initially coming into the space and seeing the opportunities that exist at the industrial level and the possibility for growth for a small company is really exciting. I'm wondering what was going through your mind when you're thinking about almost like the opposite about how, how do we make this smaller? One analogy I love, I love to make because it's it's got similarities out to Wazoo if you, if you really dig into it is the ice industry. The ice historically, prior to like 1900, roughly when refrigeration was invented in the Industrial Revolution, you got ice once a year when it was cold enough outside, climate dependency. And to me, that's not too different from the way agriculture is now. Of course, you can find Mediterranean climates that have those ideal climates year round, but we are dependent on climate. Climate decides how much food there is. Climate decides how much food we can distribute. We are really slaves to climate. And the big breakthrough in the ice industry was refrigeration. But they put it in these massive warehouses. The bigger, the better. Bigger economies of scale. And what happens? They send out a perishable good. It melts along the way. People had ice chest. You know, that was the precursor to the refrigerator. A box I would put a perishable good in to try and limit the perishability of the other things I put in the box. And it was kind of this redundant cycle. And there was a lot of people that thought, could it be a household level? And there was a lot of people that said, no, that'll never work. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. It's not feasible. And all of those arguments at first were valid. They were absolutely right. The first refrigerators were $20,000 adjusting for inflation. If you looked at the existing supply chain, why do I need a $20,000 machine when I could get a block of ice for a dollar, right? The economics don't make sense. But where did you get your ice this week? Did you go to the ice factory or did you go to the refrigerator? To me, all of the reasons why there was people who were skeptical about the in-home decentralized model, it's, it's very easy to apply these over. I mean, you're simulating a climate. You're making it cold enough for water to freeze, right? And, and that was cutting edge in, in that industrial revolution. But we're in a biological age now. These LED lighting is so efficient. We can dial in the fertilization exactly what the nutrition needs to be. We can really eliminate a lot of these variables. So the technology of hydroponics is inherently portable. And when I make this next comment, I want to first lead with, I have immense respect for the vertical farms in the world. They're doing a lot of cutting edge research that, you know, my introduction to the technology wouldn't have been possible had, you know, the work of others been done before us. But if you put it in a stationary facility, you limit its potential to scale. That was my observation on the industry. If we are now in this advanced IoT automation age, we have technologies that can replicate these environments decentralized without a skilled operator present. Why can't that be an appliance? Why can't we make the point of consumption the point of production? And I think just thinking about those points logically, uh, if you can't tell, I like appliances. My hometown, I'm in Evansville, Indiana. At one point, this was known as the refrigerator capital of the USA. Whirlpool had its plant here, employed, I think, over 50,000 people at its peak. Louisville's only a few miles away. And that had GE's appliance manufacturing capital. So that obviously played a heavy influence on this. But I also, you know, as a young person, realized it's a lot easier to build one small thing 
than to try and convince someone to give me funding for one big thing. And when it came down to getting funding, that was another a critical aspect too. You know, I was young and had no capital to start the business. Well, universities have pitch competitions and they're amazing. They are the best thing I think a young person can ever engage in. It's like Shark Tank. You go up there, you give a pitch. Yeah, there needs to be some showmanship. You need to be able to woo people. I mean, if you're not making the audience interested, what are you doing? You're boring them. So we would compete at university level pitch competitions to get grants. And these would be small five to 10,000, sometimes even $20,000 grants. But, you know, if you make that your job for a year as a young person, when you're exclusively eligible, a lot of times these students are only for students. I mean, you can get like up to a hundred thousand dollars in a year if you're aggressive enough and go after these different universities. So that's what we did. And we had to bring the prototype with us. You find that at these events talking about something, that's great. Can you show it? That's better. So walking in with a prototype, no matter how crude it looks, but just to demonstrate the base functionality, it, it would win competition. So it had to be portable on that nature. Uh, really, we, we just kind of adapted to the situation that we were in and, and developed a method that was able to obtain the resources that we identified as being critical for us to pay for patents and other foundational expenses that have much longer returns on investments. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think it sort of turns the model a little bit on its ear. When you think about startup companies, they initially think that I have to create an MVP and then I have to go after angel investors and I have to raise my first round. And, and the beauty of what you do is sort of boots on the ground. You know, you, you have to put a little bit more elbow grease in than a typical startup founder. But, you know, the beauty of that, of that approach is that everything that you, all the grants that you collect you know, at the end of the day or at the end of the year, you're still left with full control of the company, which I think is, is something that's very important and something a lot of founders overlook. Absolutely. And a lot of founders, what I find is they put preconceived notations that entirely artificially, it's, it's, it's self-manufactured why they can't be successful. You ask them, why aren't you moving prototype development along? Why don't you at the very least have one pilot customer? I mean, you can afford to put the prototype in a house and not charge them and just ask, do you like this? Is it terrible? These aren't horribly complicated things. I mean, even if it's your own home and your parents, I mean, that's at least at a minimum, a starting point to learn. But there's this strange misconception, and I'm not sure if it's this kind of social media era where we see the Facebooks of the world become, you know, unicorns almost overnight when they have those funding rounds. But companies like that had years of hardship where they had to refine their prototype before it was ever possible to do that. I firmly believe that no amount of capital will resolve fundamental flaws in business models. Those need to be and have to be addressed before you talk to those investors because it creates expectations of liquidity events and profitability that if you're anything but delivering on those deadlines, I mean, you have failed your, your fiduciary commitment to the investors who bought into that company. That, that's a great comment. The way we, we actually were able to move to sales without having to raise that round. Now, I will say we're incredibly fortunate. The Purdue Research Foundation did make multiple investments into our company in the form of a convertible note. The first was a $25,000 and then second was a $50,000 later through their agriculture venture fund. But those were structured very similar as the other pitch competitions. But what I found out, and this might have been the most useful asset we had at the time, well, number one, I was broke. <laughs> so paying for the prototypes, that was me. I was working night shifts delivering newspapers for the Exponent, which is the newspaper on Purdue's campus. 
Well, while I was working that 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. shift, I got to be pretty good friends with the managing editor of the newspaper. Every time we won, I made sure our article was in there. I didn't care if someone else wrote they authored it. I don't care. That's not what I'm worried about. I just want the exposure. Please include mention of this accomplishment. And you'll find out the press copies each other like crazy. If you get one newspaper, you've pretty much got five or ten because they just replicate it. And people start emailing you saying, hey, I know this is an early product. You educated them. They read the article. It's exciting. There's an experience happen, a bigger disruption. They feel like they're taking part in a revolution. People will start emailing you out of the blue and say, when this is ready, I want one. And we already had a list of 20, 30 customers before we graduated of just the people emailing me from that constant exposure. I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back on it, that was everything. Because then I was able, once we finally had an MVP working in our lab, I called these people up and it was just revenue. Give me a $500 deposit. It was a $2,000 appliance. Don't get me wrong. It's high priced at, at low volumes like this. It's very much a luxury appliance, but they put $500 down in a deposit. You know, we built the trust in the publications. They knew we were legit. They were okay putting money into a business that had no cash flow history. Then I went and got a loan from Evansville uh, Veteran, actually, it's our utility company. They had a nonprofit that focuses on giving loans to innovative companies that would create high growth like jobs in the area. And so we were able to get a loan after that to finance the remaining inventory. And then we built everything ourselves in a garage and delivered the product to the consumers, collected the remaining $1,500 balance and paid off the loan before interest was due. Only after we actually had paying users of the technology, we were able to listen what sucked, what was great, what was left to be desired on it. That feedback then set us up in discussions with investors. It was so much easier. I mean, you just speak to uncertainties unless you have actually put it in consumers' hands. So that, that's kind of how we started. And then from there, we were able to raise some capital. But basically, that whole year of 2017 was spent just competing at pitch competitions and refining the MVP to where it just worked, right? You can grow plants once. That's, that's not really hard. Can you grow it three times in a row, four times in a row? Can you manage pathogen outbreaks? That's hard. Being able to get at least that replicatable success that you could do outside the lab that was kind of the 2017 focus. 2018 was then executing on those unit deliverables to those super early beta, early adopters. So that, that, that's really how it started. Yeah, those early adopters are so important in any business. They're almost like helping you fund the business because they, they're taking a chance on you because it's you know it's something that's a lot what we see in like the Indiegogo model. And people, there's a, there, there's a bit of a roll of the dice because you're saying there's a chance that this product a as promised may not be delivered at all and b if it is delivered then it may not be what was advertised and you know i, I took a chance but i think there's something to be said for those folks early on who believe in you and, and believe in your vision and are willing to take a chance on you because they can help validate and also give you that productive feedback that you mentioned on what's working and what's not and which i think is so valuable especially in those early cycles i mean i'm an engineer so i think in functions right and to me, it seems obvious. Does the function improve the growing performance? 
therefore improves the overall experience for the consumer. But until you understand the consumers by emotions, not functions, you can just spend your wheels in place all day. So being able to actually ask these people, why did you buy this? You, you don't even know who I am. In fact, I had a funny story. Uh, there was one guy that lived in a neighborhood in Indianapolis, a little rougher, and I get there to deliver the device out of the back of my car. I, I didn't have a delivery vehicle. I had a very sorry looking trailer on the back, dented up. And, you know, I unpull this, you know, big appliance out. I actually called my co-founder and said, if you don't hear from me an hour, call, call someone. And I knock on this guy's door and this guy's like, who are you? I'm like, oh, I'm Scott. I got your grow pot. He's like, great. Just put it right there on my porch. Just put it there. I'm like, sir, early adopter, white glove delivery experience. I'll, I'll, I'll do everything. I don't want it. Just put it on the porch. I'm like, huh. Okay. Well, I'm not going to fight you, but here's my card. He sees the card and goes, oh, founder. I just thought you're an intern. And, uh, the guy tells me, let me tell you why I bought this. I'm diabetic. And my doctor said, I need to start eating better or I'm probably going to die sooner. Pick one. And he had family members that were vegans that were also, I don't know if they were diabetic, but indicated that there was similar health things going on. And that since they switched to a mostly plant-based diet, they were a lot healthier. So this individual wasn't looking at it from the gardening experience or the better tasting food. It was borderline a medically influenced, but I'll say it, it was a medically influenced decision to have higher quality food. When you start looking at this as an ROI as to investing into your health, it's a really immediate sell to the individual. And I think that's a really important branding consideration to take into account as volumes are small and productions are low and things are more expensive in their earlier stage. So can you talk a little bit about the model you decided on when trying to figure out what exactly the unit was going to be able to grow? You know, there's variations of what you can grow. And obviously, the listener can see the examples on the website and, and see the video that you've created there as well. But how were you thinking about how much variety you were going to allow, given the constraints that you had and the space that you had to work with? Us, you know, we oftentimes use the phrase Keurig or Nespresso for food, kind of describe the platform. And that's the goal, have a platform and a, a database, an encyclopedia of different types of crops that you, you don't even know what they taste like. You, you, you're not in this climate. You've never even had these plants in your state before. And now you can't have it in your kitchen grown autonomously. So we knew early on that a big aspect of the value proposition was varieties and keeping ourselves as open-ended and configurable as possible was critical. And there's actually lots of instances of that in agriculture. If you look back to like the John Deere plow or the very first tractors that were unveiled in the, in the field, having variable spacing tire tracks to accommodate different types of croppets was a huge, huge aspect for farmers because really the only thing you can do is just listen to the individuals. And I would hear everything. I would hear expats that maybe came from Korea and they wanted bok choy and specific types of herbs that they missed from their diets. Multiple instances of like that. Some people wanted ornamental flowers, things like marigolds to get prime for their gardens. So we just learned early on that the system needed to be configurable, that we could ask the user, what do you want to grow? And then build our offering around that. But really our main limitations are what we can't grow. We don't do trees, so anything that takes a really long time, I mean, you can, but it probably isn't feasible or financially viable to do so whatsoever. Anything with a woody stem gets tricky, vine crops, or anything that's just massive and isn't compact doesn't really do well. So what grows in a greenhouse is usually a good indication as to what can grow well inside of a grow pod. 
And did you find that you were looking to partner with either the folks who were creating the seeds or working on new variations of hybrids? You know, there's a new generation of crops that are being created that can actually are made to fit in, you know, a, a smaller batches of tomatoes, for example, cherry tomatoes that are more closely dense together. So did you have to go out and see what was happening in the world of small produce, I guess, so to speak? You know, now, yes. That's something we're uh, very much so focusing on now. And that, that's, I got to tell you, an exciting area as a whole, because what is possible to grow in a greenhouse today will be very different four years from now. I'm, I'm not sure if it might have been on one of your podcasts. Someone said, you know, we've had, what, 10,000, 12,000 years to perfect agriculture in the soil. And it's like the last 15 to 30 years we've been going indoors. There's, we're, we haven't even scratched the surface and what's possible as far as selective breeding on crops. But early on, no, I wasn't. In fact, I'll tell you on some of the mistakes I made. You're going to laugh. You're going to think, wow, this, this is an engineering mistake. <laughs> when we started supplying the seed pods initially, I gave people links to Amazon accounts to buy their fertilizer and said, hey, here's your vendor. Buy it from them. And everyone's like, whoa, whoa, what was this? Another purchase? And I was like, yeah, it's cheaper there. If I buy it, I'm small volumes. I'm just going to put them in small bottles, raise the price to get my margin, and then send it to you. Is that what you want? The answer was yes. The answer was, I want one box. And I don't want anything outside of this one box. And I don't want to have to even know what's really in the box. I don't want to know about macro, micronutrients. I don't want to know about calcium. I don't want to know about any of that stuff. I just want it to work. And that's when I realized this is a really unique experience because by enabling a non-expert on the technology, you're also making them dependent on your subscription offering. The likelihood of them branching out from that when they don't know how to is essentially zero. So it took those learning experiences to learn what my customers wanted to start then looking at the varieties. And then eventually, you know, we learned that a huge value proposition was getting seeds that they would have never had access to. Some of those cutting edge varieties that the general public as a whole doesn't have access to that you sometimes need special relationships and licenses to even access some of those varieties. So it's been a learning experience for us and it's, it's, it's really exciting to see what direction that's moving towards. That's fascinating. It just speaks to what we were touching on earlier, the fact that you're getting this feedback and, and you think you have a preconceived notion about what it is that they want. And in your mind, you thought you were doing something beneficial for them. But it also speaks to something, we see it, for example, on our podcast production side, like people want a done for you service. Like They want to know like all the different aspects of it. They want to know that what's involved, but they don't want to do it. So it sounds like a lot like for, for these folks, the whole allure of a um, offering like this is the fact that to that gentleman's point, literally like he felt like if he, even if he left it on the porch, he could just plug it in and it would just do its thing, which is, which is, I imagine the expectation for a lot of folks and the selling point too, because sort of like know that they don't have to continuously maintain it, which is something that, you know, not everyone, most people do not have the green thumb, right? Yeah. And, and this is actually another reason why we go direct to consumer. If the value proposition of indoor agriculture is better tasting, more nutritious food, has you know essentially no supply chain to get there, then we need to be hearing consumers' feedback on that to actually validate those claims. Are they actually saying, yeah, this tastes better, I'd like to buy more of this? You know, Again, I have a lot of respect for vertical farms, but I would also make the comment that grocers are the primary beneficiary in most vertical farming models. Unless that grocer is just selling lettuce off the shelf, which hasn't really been seen yet or to the best of my knowledge i could be wrong 
I hope I'm wrong. It, unless that happens, the grocer is going to do what's predictably in their best interest and just let the produce sit on the shelf a little bit longer. It's just lettuce that lasts longer, has you know longer shelf life. Until that consumer knows it's coming from a vertical farm, there's a severe disconnect between the two. You know, one company that I think is interesting is Infarm. You know, they've been expanding pretty quickly. I haven't actually met any of the founders in that company. They're based in Europe. But in just the past year, they've, you know, I'm just kind of saying what I've read in these articles. None of this has been validated, but it looks like they've raised upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars, yet they're also scaling with major food retailers. Now, Infarm's not the first company to do remotely deployed container growing system. There's been a few of those companies out there. Now, what they do differently, though, is that consumers can see it. And it's, it's like a rotisserie chicken. Rotisserie chickens are sold at a loss in grocery stores, but you hear it sizzling. Oh, yeah. You see it. Oh, the smell. You can taste it before you've even eaten it. And suddenly you're buying twice as much food as you came in to get before because you're hungry. It induces that just, you know, human reaction. It's really innate in us. Watching a plant grow, something beautiful happens in that, how an individual can associate themselves to it. And I think companies that understand that well are like Ikea. You know, there's examples of Ikea giving people crates and they're like, how much is this worth? I'm like, I don't know, a dollar. Yeah. And then they give them a few wood slags, a hammer and nails. They make it themselves. And suddenly it's a $5 crate. When you imprint your mark on it, you have that maker experience. You really drive the value of it being custom to you. Yeah. And I I had a conversation with Andrew Carter of Smallhold and they're they're doing mushrooms and they're doing the displays in the retail stores and in in the units and in the restaurants. And, you know, they're beautiful and they're they're nice to look at. And and they're definitely like a selling point because people come in and they see that and they're just like, it it also educates people as well. And I think, you know, obviously there's a huge window on, on your unit as well. So can you talk a little bit about how you started thinking about form and function and design and aesthetics as well, because it seems to be an important part of the product. Thank you. Thank you for asking that, because that's a conversation I think that, that does not happen enough in this space. There's a whole suite of designs. There's countertop models, which are largely decorative, but you know there is instances of them producing enough that it could be considered maybe useful in some circumstances. But when you don't control the environment around it, you're not regulating humidity, temperature, and other factors, you're going to get limited yields, and you're also going to be subject to low humidities in the winter. Like That's going to adversely affect your plant growth. So being able to actually have a sealed environment, that is a huge distinction of a self-contained device. Can it regulate climate inside of its chamber? check that kind of separates to in in my mind systems that can operate uninterrupted throughout the year from the ones who cannot now the ones that actually have the self-contained environmental control function look at refrigerators perfect example there's the under the counter model so it's going to abide by the footprint of a dishwasher it's going to fit under meaning it's 34.5 inches tall you typically a 24 inch width and depth you're going to see some variability in that in different markets just like how europeans would have a different outlet size they're going to have different counter heights and depths but still you know it's constant throughout europe these things like once you understand these standards they're unchanging for whatever reason i can't really understand it there's a lot of people who've gone really close to those dimensions but not exactly there. For, for whatever reason, there's been a disconnect with the appliance industry. Well, I say for whatever reason, it's difficult. You know, working with those sort of manufacturing supply chains, a lot of it's in Asia, 
especially right now, it's, you know, July 23rd, there's a pandemic ongoing and that's disrupted many businesses, ourselves included in some of our supply chain dependencies. But what we wanted to do was make it like an appliance you already were familiar with. And think of like a Thermador wine cooler. It's beautiful, stainless steel, it's sleek, it matches the kick plate, it's uninterrupted, it's continuous, it's it's just seamless in your kitchen. It matches the stove, right? That's the commonality here. You grow your food, then what? You prepare it on what appliance? And then maybe that food gets stored in a refrigerator or something, whatever it is. You know, there's a continuation in the kitchen where it needs to look cohesive. And I mean, that's a fundamental tenet of any design perspective at all. So that was kind of our focus. We, we looked at existing appliance manufacturers, found ways to retrofit their design, and then build our product around the way appliances are designed. Someone explained this to me recently because, you know, the appliance companies, they're now looking at this industry. I don't know why this isn't getting more notice, but this is like potentially a monumental thing. Like if refrigerators or appliances start having the function of growing your food, I mean, the global implications of this supply chain disruption I mean, it's almost incomprehensible. Of course, we're not going to be growing corn, soybean, or any other row crops in these. Like, it will at most be, you know, a good complement to industrial agriculture for those sort of things. But for your really highly perishable crops, there's no reason this can't be grown on the household level. Can you talk to what might be obvious for some folks who kind of look at the unit and then think about, you know, their own home, obviously. There's challenges in terms of a limited amount of real estate that you do have. So it might behoove you, if you haven't done so already, to start working with home development companies, right, who are who are building out units from scratch. And have you thought about that relationship? And, and can you speak to like that idea of people thinking it's it's beautiful, but I I literally don't know where I where I could put it. Right. Yeah. So we've had people as as its own under the counter appliance in its current embodiment right now being standalone. We've seen people put it where they have available space. So sometimes that's the the maid's closet next to the washing machine, or it's it's a little less out of sight than we would have preferred. Other times it's been in basements and garages and pretty far out of sight. But you know they're still growing. They're operating from it and having a great user experience. And other times it's in the kitchen, and it's in that under the counter spot. We've had people actually make those modifications, or luckily had available space that we could kind of go into. And to your point, it's it's a challenge. You have to convince a user that this four square foot in your home would be better used cultivating plants than serving any other purpose. And if you look at our demographic, people in high urban densities and climates where they cannot grow that can be a hard challenge to get across sometimes to explain that, hey, in this apartment that's maybe a thousand square feet, you're paying how many thousand dollars per month, right? The opportunity cost goes up. But what I can say now is, you know, kind of back to the appliance companies, we're aware of who the stakeholders are that are necessary in our industry. And, and what I foresee is a merger of sorts that I think will consolidate some of these appliances and help eliminate the need to have a standalone device. I think that is a critical adoption factor for this to reach a mass market and really kind of diverge from its current niche status. Do you see an opportunity or or is there any interest in using all the work that you've done? Because when you think of refrigerator, you can think of maybe a small leap to commercial refrigerator. So do you think about that sometimes? Maybe smaller restaurants who could see a double size unit of this or something that would fit in their space? That's a few points there. So we have been in at least a restaurant owner's home before 
and also several schools. Uh, so those beta models, we actually donate them all once they've kind of reached their life cycle. Most of those were hobbyist grade components on the sensors and stuff. So they weren't really even designed to work this far, but they still work to limited capacity. So we gave them to schools so they could just kind of have the charitable learning experience associated with it. There are some in this space that focused only on schools. And their value proposition is very different. It's not necessarily yield data. It's more so maybe like interaction, visibility, maybe if there's enough plants for everyone to hold and kind of dissect sort of thing. It's a slightly different performance grade. Now, the pandemic shut those down. Those who had schools and restaurants and businesses as their clients are having a really, really hard time right now. And I'm not going to pretend that, you know, we made this decision to go directly to consumers in anticipation of any you know global pandemic happening but i'm really glad we made the decision we did because i'm not uninterrupted in fact we're having increased demand because more people want contactless food i mean just china is a perfect example the amount of people that use meal deliveries there prior to the pandemic this is an anecdotal assumption. I haven't done the research in depth yet, but I understand it to be maybe one in four people used like food delivery there. And now it's like 90%. Wow. That's like 1.5 billion people. What percentage of the world just switched to virtual food deliveries? And what's the one food item that's really hard to ship because it's perishable? It's produce. So, I mean, if growing produce in the home can close that gap and we're going in this irreversible and inevitable transition to food digital fulfillment, to me, I think it complements that model really well. To your point about scaling up, something interesting about the ice industry analogy is that there was never a single ice factory that sold a refrigerator. And there wasn't a single ice harvester that made an ice factory. They sometimes call that entrepreneurial Darwinism. I've heard that term before. They have a really hard time understanding how this existing infrastructure doesn't fit into this new model that's being proposed. They just aren't compatible. So could we scale up? Absolutely. But we're really content with where our margins are now. There hasn't really been a need to do so. Now, that being said, are we opposed to licensing intellectual property and working with partners in commercial productions? Absolutely. I think it would be a great relationship. And that's actually a larger system is something that we've built internally and experimented with. So we could very well move into that B2B segment very soon. It's just a matter of ordering a little bit more material to make it taller. And that's it. The architecture, if anything, is overbuilt for a business because you have to be so much more autonomous and so much more robust and branded in your packaging to deal with consumers than you would to even do it a business setting. How self-sustainable is it and what's the, the life cycle and is it sustainable in a way so that whatever software drives it or whatever maintenance would be required to keep it going year over year. Is that some thought that's gone into like these later iterations of the models that it can actually run on its own and actually grow as, as you learn new new things about how to improve the process? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, we just got to thank the timing. Right when I was learning about the technology, LEDs were taking off and it was clear that they were just having such rapid leaps in efficiency that LED lighting was the future of indoor ag at the same time as cloud computing becoming widely available and obtainable to small companies. I mean, anyone, you don't have to be a computer scientist can buy a Raspberry Pi microcontroller you know, find an open source library and start hosting something on AWS and having low level cloud-based IoT functionality. We were lucky that the stars kind of aligned right when we needed them to, to start implementing those sort of procedures on the system. So 
I'm sorry, if I can remember that question, it was maintenance and efficiency for sustainability. Yeah. And also when you think about software, it's typically driven by updates. So like every time my, my Mac, there's new updates for the Mac, you know, you can just run a new update on the Mac and you get the latest and greatest improvements. So we're cloud-based, so the device is constantly sucking in data, compressing that, sending it to the cloud, algorithm executes stuff, and then we're able to learn from there. So it's, it's a continuous process. I mean, we're on the consumer's Wi-Fi just like their Nest thermostat is. And there's ways you can compress data over periods of time and minimize the amount of times that's ping, but we're on home Wi-Fi. So, you know, data usage isn't really a concern as long as you're not reducing their bandwidth speed or anything like that. But as far as sustainability, that is a great question because that is a very legitimate criticism of this industry. If your power bill to grow your vegetables is bigger than the grocery bill for those same vegetables, you're not helping anyone. I mean, you're, you're arguably contributing to climate change. You're probably making the situation worse by finding this really energy intensive way to obtain your vegetables. And that was a core aspect of our design for rotary aeroponics. We discovered that if you rotate plants on a vertical tower, you number one, get cylindrical growth. The plants radiate out in every direction, which means the surface area, if you think of the surface area of a cylinder, it's expanding as the plants grow. The canopies aren't competing for space like they are on two-dimensional tiers, they're irradiating out. They're encouraging mutual growth among one another. And then you have the issue of lighting, okay? You have a 360-degree tower. How are you going to illuminate that? Are you going to put lights on all four sides? We tried that. It doesn't work because it's really bright and consumers don't like staring into the sun. <laughs> it hurts your corneas. Yeah, you're going to see black spots. So taking in those kind of soft consumer points like light pollution and noise are very important when designing your lighting system. And then if you're only going to illuminate half of it, how do you get light on the back part of that tower? You rotate it. Hence the birth of rotary aeroponics. So for us, it was optimizing that power efficiency and also optimizing that yield to overall improve that system. So what we've seen is a pretty substantial increase in the overall grams of produce per kilowatts of hour going in. Note that I'm using kilowatts of hour of total power for the entire system. That means lights, that means your pump, your irrigation. Don't look at just the photons, like the, the lights. That's you could say the HVAC probably consumes more power on most systems than a lot of even just the lighting does. You have to look at the complete system's power consumption. A lot of vertical farms I've seen will use what they pay per kilowatt hour to say, we use you know $2,000 worth of power per month. Well, okay, that I need to know what you're paying per kilowatt hour. Because citizens in the United States on average pay about 13 cents per kilowatt hour of energy coming through. Farms can get reduced agricultural energy subsidies and pay a tenth of a cent per kilowatt hour. So you have to be really careful to look at how these performance variables are being quantified to truly understand a comparative efficiency across systems. Yeah, it's an important distinction to make. And I don't know if it was intentional, but your comparison to rotisserie chickens sort of came full circle again <laughs> yeah. with the rotating uh, tower, I think. So, Scott, can you talk a little bit about the challenges as an organization and as a young CEO? You know, what, what are some of the things that you've had to deal with? Because, again, this is not only are you building a company, but you're also now you're responsible for growing a team. And so I'm curious, as an entrepreneur myself, like, what are some of the things you think about, about, you know, uh, you did have your co-founder, but then... Who are the first people you need to bring on the team and maybe some of the bumps along the way? You know, there's a good book called Good to Great. 
And there's kind of those three variables, humble, hungry, and smart, and in that order. And, and that's what I, I try and practice as much as I can myself. And then also look for individuals that try and do that. So, I mean, humble, number one. I have gone to pitches, you know, I had to, I had to stand up and speak. If we're going to compete for funding, we would have had no money otherwise. And when you're in that early concept stage, you're going to find out that, you know, some of these research reports you may have even read from a university in scholarly source are wrong. You might find out that certain, you know, ranges of pH of plants growing might be completely different than what you've read because what you're practicing is different than what was done in a laboratory or there's other variables. You'll, what I'm getting at is you're going to find out that a lot of your assumptions were wrong early on. And the worst thing you can do is marry yourself to one of these things, to think that a certain technology is better than one another for some you know, preconceived reason or present a statistic that's like outdated or you might find out Raiders long. You just need to be accepting that you are going, you will absolutely be wrong. The only question is to just how and what, what was it that you were wrong about and then correcting it as you go and being able to admit that, you know, I think that that can sometimes be a hard thing for some people when they're also trying to prove, you know, they have to stay relevant and they're trying to stay kind of competitive in that element. But you need to be realistic that if the results you're seeing are different than what you've been reading and have studied, then you need to identify the solution of that. And you also need to enlist expertise. I mean, we're talking about chemistry, biological processes. This isn't subjective. This is a science that needs to be researched. You know, after humility, just being able to put your ego aside and focus on the bigger goal, hunger. You know, I've met a lot of people that were really established in their career. Some we've worked with, some we haven't. But I mean, is this just another project? Is this a leapfrog from one startup to the other? Or, or do you really want to put a dent in food insecurity? Like, do you want to be a part of the solution that's going to feed our grandchildren? If you genuinely believe that the food system could be greatly approved to better the world, then welcome aboard. We'd love to have you. Otherwise, if you don't have that fundamental passion, and passion cannot be taught. It's it's born. It's it's in the individual. Then you know I can't influence you. And if that passion is financial, if it's a monetary thing, if you're in it to get rich, I mean, there's money to be made, but it's not going to be quick. I mean, that's what I think has been a learning experience as a young person. That sometimes there's a preconceived notation along with any business industry that someone's going to get rich quick. When that that's not the case. It's going to be years of heartache and hardship before you ever even build something that remotely resembles value. And then the last thing is smart. And that's often the last thing I'm looking at. Are you technically capable of doing what I need you to do? If you are, then great. You can be a contractor and you can do specific jobs. If you go beyond that and you're humble and hungry, then we could talk about employment. And I've made mistakes. You know, I, I think I brought on individuals that didn't fit that and we've had to make corrections along the way. But I've also learned that a small team of people who fit this mold can achieve more than a large team can. Because kind of going back to those pre like those notations where I can't do this, I haven't been funded yet. Yes, you can. You probably just haven't found a cost effective or a sponsor. You haven't looked for other methods to do it. So just finding a small team that's very agile and quick, they're not afraid to make mistakes, but they learn from them even faster. I mean, that's what makes a small team as productive as what a team of 50 individuals or hundreds of individuals can even do. Oftentimes, some of the bureaucracies I see surrounding hardware manufacturing, it's, it's kind of shocking that they're able to make products at all. You know, that's just me, though. My experience is working with startups. I haven't really been in big corporate companies very much, but... 
there's nothing wrong with being small. If I can get to that, you don't need a big team. Like automated financial tools exist. You don't really even know. You should be able to read a spreadsheet, but you don't have to know tax law. There's so many tools. It's easier to start a business now than it ever was before. Yeah. Um, what was it like preparing for the TEDx talk and delivering it? You know, that was, again, I think another kind of cultural change for me because I was used to, hi, sharks, here's my product sort <laughs> yeah. of thing to be a part of our mission. This is the revolution we're going after. And I would say the biggest word, if I could summarize it, is segmentation. You know, before, you know, people ask, what's what's good about it? I go, well, in the indoor ag industry, the power efficiencies aren't great. and We're going to improve. I already lost them, right? No one cares about that unless you're an engineer in this space, right? But the ice analogy, you probably had a glass of ice with water this morning with your lunch. That you get. And most people had no idea that there was such a evolutionary process that had to happen for them to have a refrigerator that just works. Something that is, you know, a robot in the home that just works. There's no emotional thing to it. It just works. It does what you need it to do. And framing ourselves as that same user experience and also making the audience aware of the greater inefficiencies of agriculture were things that maybe seemed a little obvious to me that I needed to segment ourselves in that same analogy. And that TED Talk, you know, it's, it's a lot more work than people realize. They really go through the iterative steps. Shout out to Wabash College for having me there. The the gentlemen at that university were incredibly professional and made it very seamless and easy to get through. But it does require, I think, a little bit of self-discovery to figure out how you fit into this bigger scheme of things. Because, you know, again, if you're not creating a movement or a bigger platform that, you know, other things can be branched off, you're, you're selling a widget up you know, a thing that, that kind of starts and stops there, not a commodity an experience. And it seems like it's an, an experience for you that would help you understand the power of storytelling. Absolutely. You know, one thing that I think kind of helped me early on learn a key aspect of public speaking was in my hometown here in Evansville, they have a cool program called Teen Court. So if a juvenile under the age of 18 commits a crime, they can go to juvie court or teen court. Teen court, the jury is made up of all local high school volunteers. And prosecution and defense attorneys are actually high school students, too. It's a real courtroom, a real trial, a real judge, up to six months, house arrest and retribution. A number of other punishments can be thrown on. I think I lied about my age when I joined. I started as an eighth grader. But uh, <laughs> I was on the jury a few times, and then I was in the prosecution and defense. And another thing I realized, kind of talking to the audience is, you know, when you hold up a piece of paper and it's you're hiding behind it, giving your speech, you know, you're talking at people, Right. There's a difference between talking to people like what we're doing right now. I'm, I'm looking for feedback. Like what, what you're not saying is just as important as what you are saying. Your facial reactions. I mean, that is everything. And being able to actually look an audience in the eye and, and stop. Maybe, maybe that person in the first row kind of squinted. They didn't hear what you said. You know, just those soft little touches can make the difference between a good and a great speech. That's awesome. What has you excited about the industry itself? And, and is, are there companies that you are currently admire in the space also? Yeah, I think I already talked about a little bit in farm. You know, I think that's an interesting group. You know, again, I've never met them. I just kind of admire what I've seen watching from the United States, seeing this group solidify a lot of partnerships with grocers and actually benefit from the pandemic. And I don't mean that in an insensitive way, but, you know, people want locally sourced fresh, clean food that they don't have to worry about, you know, exposure to, you know, an unnecessary amount of people. I think there was a statistic I read in like the National Resource Defense Council doing like a food waste analysis of the U.S. that 20 people touched your head of lettuce before you ate it. 
I hope none of those people had COVID along the way or were transmissible, but that's a real and valid concern that a consumer is going to have. And it seems like that group is talking the talk and actually walking it and like showing that they can scale beyond that. And it's because number one, they're decentralized. I believe they probably have an operator. I don't know the details of their system, but there's, it's remotely deployed. There's not a full-time person, you know, just watching it. Like there's probably cameras in it. It has an IOT aspect that's inherently decentralized. A lot of the warehouses are having a hard time replicating it because it's, it's not really a decentralized approach. It was very smart of them to invest in the aesthetics. And that's a new thing in the agriculture space. Your agricultural equipment needs to look good. People want to have it there. You don't want to be an eyesore. Think of like feng shui design requirements. If I can't see this growing, you know, it's just, it's a piece of plant in a clamshell. That's a good point. It's like, I heard another statistic, like less than 1% of consumers know what hydroponics is. So, I mean, there's, that could be wrong, but it's not a lot. Right. If you have to educate them on some branding on this thing, like that's a lot of time that people probably aren't going to spend reading the label, trying to understand. And on top of all that, those claims are highly regulated by the USDA on what you can and can't say, claiming that your produce is more nutritious or vice versa. I think those guys just do a great job not even having to explain it. It's obvious. I mean, it's, it's freshness on demand. It's there. There's no question where it came from. There's no doubt in my mind. It can even be more expensive. But man, this whole thing, whatever it is, it's cool. I'm at least going to try this out of it. Yeah. We're selling the experience. Yeah. I mean, you're talking a two, three dollar head of greens or herbs. Like consumers will buy that to understand what that experience is. And I, I think it has a lot to do with color. I think, you know, we're a very artistic people, like just animal. I mean, we see colors. Do you remember that? And I think the the colors of the grow lights just does something psychologically that makes people really remember it. What's a hard question you've had to ask yourself recently? You know, I, I've rethought our some of our supply chains dependency on Asia. It's not that I, you know, really wanted to go to Asia. It's that a lot of industries have left the United States or the industries that remain are vertically integrated. I would have loved to have found an appliance factory here. You know, this was it. I'm in Evansville. You know, this building I'm in right now, this is an appliance engineering laboratory owned by old Whirlpool engineers, right? So in GE, their higher appliance research engineering office is right across the road there. So it's really close. These industries are vertically integrated. You can't just call up an appliance company and ask them to make 100 prototypes. It, it doesn't work like that. You have to go overseas to find a contract manufacturer that was in the business of manufacturing stop. Not a company that was in the business of distributing branded finished products, but someone that's willing to work with you at the earliest of stages. That was difficult. And we had to go overseas to find some of those sources. And to be honest with you, it's not that I regret that decision, but it would have been nice if I could have found closer, more domestic. And in hindsight, I would have been willing to pay a little bit more had I known that these sort of disruptions were going to happen. The good news is these are components, right? They're largely commodities. You can buy them from other people. There's no reason these things can't be corrected along the way. Well, Scott, thanks you so much for sharing your story. It's really inspirational, both as an entrepreneur and also as someone in, you know, who's just getting their start in the vertical farming industry. I think the fact that you showed that even at a young age, you had the wherewithal to figure out how to bootstrap this yourself for that first year using the grants that you were receiving. And I think it's helpful for new entrepreneurs to realize that there's not one path in terms of getting funded and making those dreams that you have a reality. And so I applaud you on that. And I'm wishing you like all the greatest 
greatest success for GrowPod. And so I'm wondering if just in closing, if you had a couple of thoughts about what, what the future holds for you and what, you, what you're excited about. You know, we've been able to identify some key stakeholders in this industry. You know, there's appliance companies, there's hardware. Hardware needs to be done right and it needs to be supported and you need to have great expertise and an established brand that consumers will trust. So I see us having continued focus and hopefully some involvement with the appliance companies to work with that hardware element. We hope to continue working with seed suppliers. You know, the big agriculture companies have been pretty silent in a lot of cases as to what they're going to plan for vertical farms, yet we have this wildly massive potential market segment. So we're going to continue some of those relationship building and continue to have seeds brought in that aren't available to the larger public to drive a better user experience and software, 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 automating that experience. You don't want to get your hands dirty. You just want it to work like your refrigerator. So automating that, that that's everything from vision. We're talking even blockchain. You know, I sell you a pod. How's it grow? You know, it goes really deep into how sophisticated some of these algorithms can be. And I would say we're just on the cusp of some supervised machine learning. I would say the future is probably going to be outright artificial intelligence, probably looking at you as a whole, asking, you know, tell me about yourself. You know, what's your culinary cuisine that you like? You know, do you like sweet things, bitter things? Learning about you, the individual, Harry, and then customizing the farm to what you want to eat before it's even grown. I really think that's the direction it's going to go. And, and I foresee that data companies, tech companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, who, by the way, are largely already in the indoor ag space, will probably only become increasingly more involved to help facilitate all of those items I just mentioned. Yeah, and you can see increasingly in, in the hires of these companies, it, it's not just you know the standard roles of uh, finance and marketing, but it's also machine learning, artificial intelligence, data scientists. You know, there's a lot of data to be crunched now, and I imagine there's no shortage of data getting returned back to you at HQ. And then how do you parse it? How do you ana- analyze it? And how do you what do you do with it? Right? I I imagine those are things. Those are questions you ask yourself on an ongoing basis. And if I can add one thing, though, you said kind of in spite of being young, you know, I would say thanks to being young, I could not imagine doing this if I had a family. If I had a wife and kid I had to support, I mean, having gone two years without a payment, living at my parents' house, I wasn't just not making money. I was losing money. I was also putting personal money into it, right? In that time, I have so much respect for founders who have families and manage to do both. How they do it, I don't really know. But when you're young and you don't have these obligations and you can stay up till 2, 4 a.m. working on something you love, do it. Do it. The only person telling you you can't do it is yourself. And your university wants you to do it. Most of these universities have IP policies, particularly towards undergrad students. You own what you create. It's not always the case. You should research that. But a lot of times that's the way it is. And they'll give you cash. And it's not like they're just looking for a startup. It's marketing for them. This is their proof. Like, hey, here's an entrepreneur. Come here to study business. It's not just an engineering school, right? They're missing out on a massive marketing opportunity to promote themselves as being, you know, kind of facilitating the entrepreneurial environment. So if you're young, now is the time to act. Waiting until you're out of school is foolish. The resources are exclusively available to you in that time frame. Take it while you can. Yeah, that's a great point and, and really a motivational 
point to close on to anyone that's listening and that, and that is a, a young entrepreneur, whether in this space or any other space, just kind of take advantage of this unique environment that we find ourselves in. And like you said, it's never been an easier to start a company. And, you know, obviously you have to have, come in with some unique skill sets and a drive, which is clear that you have, Scott, and um, I've seen nothing but good things for you ahead. So again, congratulations on, on everything you've, you've done so far. Uh, where's the best place for folks to stay connected with you and to learn more about GrowPod? Social media would probably be our primary channel. We're really active on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. It is GrowPod Official. That's G-R-O-P-O-D, Official, O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L. Look that up and you'll be able to find our company. The company name is actually Heliponics, but we really just focus on the product branded name GrowPod, hence the social media handle GrowPod Official. So give us a follow and you can see what we're growing. Thanks again, Scott. And we'll make sure all those links are available in the show notes. Have a great day. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. And once again, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.